This week we said uh, goodbye to Fred Ross, went to be with the Lord. Fred was a fixture here at Belmont Street for many years. Those who knew Fred would not be surprised to know that he wrote out his entire funeral. He wrote his own eulogy, and he wrote some final comments, complete with several punchlines. That was Fred. He, he loved to laugh, and um, I was with him about a week and a half ago at the hospice center, and he was uh, excited to go home to be with Jesus. Pray that I go home to be with Jesus soon, but in the meantime, pray I can still swallow so I can enjoy my food. <laughs> that, was, that was Fred. He said, you know... Dying solves all my physical issues. <laughs> we began praying together, and I was praying Fred's prayer to God. Lord, Fred wants to go on to be with you. He's ready. And so, Father, would you ease his passing and let it come quickly? And while we're praying, he, he grabs my hands and he says, Woohoo! <laughs> Never in my life. <laughs> so excited at the thought. You know, I think about it, Fred was practicing for heaven. I, I, I like to think, he stands before the throne of God this morning and he's saying, woo-hoo! What a blessing to think about that. Here's a man who journeyed with Christ and felt so close to Christ, so confident that he longed for the presence of God. Uh, it's amazing. And he's now before the throne. He is face to face with Christ. I want you to know I don't think heaven's going to be one long church service. That doesn't sound like heaven to me. Does it sound like heaven to you? But worship is the one thing I know we're going to do in heaven. It's going to be glorious. And, and we want to be about that now as God's people. So that, that's, what we're, that's what we're studying. Today, we begin two weeks looking at who we are as a people of praise together, corporately. Today, we're going to look at it theologically. Next week, we're going to look at it in terms of practice. Now, we like to focus on the individual nature of Christ's mission because we're an individualistic society. It's all about individual rights, individual success, individual tastes and choices. So our idea of the gospel and our relationship with God and even of worship is a very individual thing. But Jesus' mission wasn't just about individuals. He had something glorious in mind that he called the church. In Matthew 16, he put it this way, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now that Greek word for church, ekklesia, means the called out people. We are called out from the world to God. That same Greek word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is used to speak about Israel. Did you know that? The ecclesia, the called out people of God. And so that connection will help us understand who we are as a people of God. And the big idea I want to share with you today is this. Say it with me. True worship is a group activity, not just a personal and private experience. And the passage that's going to help us understand that is in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading at verse 4. As you come to him, 
the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In a a very short order, Peter lays out five descriptives, five analogies about who we are as the church of Jesus Christ. By the way, when he says you are, he's not referring to us as individuals. That's plural. It's like the southern equivalent to y'all. Up here, what's ours? Use? We don't have a very good term for it up here. My dad pastored uh, for a while when I was a kid in Pennsylvania, just on the edge of Pennsylvania Dutch country. They used to refer to you and yuns. Then when there were a whole lot of people, it was yunzes. So that's what we're going to use. And then he lists five things, a spiritual house, a chosen people, a holy and a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's possession. Now you look at that list. Why does it seem familiar to us prior to Peter using it? It all is used to describe the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the church that Jesus said he would build, of which we are a part who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, that church, according to Scripture, is the fulfillment of what God began in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. You see, even in the Old Testament, there was national Israel, and then there was within national Israel, spiritual Israel. God established a physical nation on earth, and there he established a physical temple and a physical process for worship. And we learned last week in the book of Hebrews that all of that was as illustration or as foreshadowing. So there was the nation of Israel that was a physical representation just by virtue of existing of who God is, his character, and what it meant to know him and and to see through their worship the prediction of Jesus who would be the real lamb of God. But there were within that nation those who were truly the children of God and those who were not. There are those who are circumcised at heart. They're the true people of God. They're the true people of God. The writer of Hebrews helps us understand that those people found righteousness in the same way we do today, by faith. 
Abraham believed God, it says, and that faith resulted in him being counted as righteous. Whereas some people may think that a person became a child of God in the Old Testament by following the law and by being part of the nation of Israel, it has always been true that people are made right with God by faith. In the Old Testament, the true people of God had faith in the promise of redemption. Today, in the New Testament, we also are justified by faith. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ as we look back at the fulfillment of that promise. Abraham and his spiritual seed, by faith looking to the cross, us by faith looking back at the cross. What that means is, as the writer of Hebrews says, we, the church today, are the spiritual seed of Abraham. We are the fulfillment of what God began through Israel in the church. And that's why all these things come forward to us and says, now in this day and age, we're that. We're that people. And so let me wrestle with some of the theological implications of this. One is... And uh, just let me throw this at you. It's okay if you don't agree with me, but just let, let, me, let me make you think about this a little bit. If there has always been a spiritual people of God, even in the Old Testament, as well as the nation of Israel, and if we today are the chosen people of God in the church, as much as I respect and feel blessed by the nation of Israel, still today I feel like they represent a part of God's plan, I don't think it's appropriate to refer to the nation of Israel today as the chosen people, except those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, because God has done something more glorious. He has made a people that are neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free. He has done something miraculous that as glorious as his work with Israel was, was just a foreshadowing. This is the thing that you need to understand. You are part of the chosen people of God and nothing less. Now, whether or not God has plans for the nation of Israel, well, there's a lot of opinions about that and all of them have some merit. I've got my own opinion about that. But let's separate that from recognizing what Christ accomplished And what he intended to accomplish when he said, I'm going to build my called out people of God. And it's everything that has come before me has pointed to. Does that make sense to you? Three observations here, really. One, it's a plural thing. We all are this together. Second, it's the fulfillment of Israel as a people of worship and praise in the Old Testament. It's fulfilled today in us. And the third thing is that every one of those things is about worship. Verse 9, say it, that you, in fact, let's say Yunzes, that Yunzes may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So one way to define the church is God's people existing for God's glory and praise, which is why God's people have always existed. All of these pictures of who we are is all about us being that worshiping people. So let's take them one at a time. The first, a spiritual house. You, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual 
house. Let's break apart this idea of living stones to begin with. You individually are alive in Christ by virtue of your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but you are far more than that. We are to be part of something bigger. These are building stones meant to be part of a giant building project called the spiritual house of God. It's like houses today built by concrete blocks. When you're done, you have blocks that are left over. What happens to them? You build a shed. (laughs) I hadn't thought of that. (laughs) If you're done with your project, they go in a dumpster or they go back to the store. They get put on a shelf. They get stored. You see, if you view your identity of Christ just as your thing, you're missing out on the ultimate purpose. In some sense, you're on the shelf. Now, as opposed to the way we build with blocks, which is cookie-cutter, mass-produced blocks, back then, living stones were hand-hewn and custom-made one at a time. When you travel to old countries where some of these buildings have existed for 2,000 years. I remember when Vitt's family came over to visit and uh, we were walking through Boston. We said, yeah, some of these houses are like 300 years old. And they laughed. They said, my basement's 2,000 years old. (laughs) You look at that basement and you see they didn't even need mortar. Why? Because every stone was perfectly fit to its exact location. Even our individual shaping that God does in your life isn't just so that He can use you individually, so that He can place you into something grand and glorious. Isn't that amazing? And this spiritual house that we're to be a part of is really the new temple of God. Spiritually, the place where God dwells. This community, not just us, but believers everywhere who are gathered in Jesus' name, that is where God is present and worshipped. That's what the temple was for. God is worshipped here. That's the first picture. Let's look at the second. A chosen people. Now there are three Greek words that Peter uses around this idea of people or culture. This particular word, genos, means race, or genetic bloodline. Recently, I had um, my DNA tested for my birthday. I was given the uh, Ancestry.com DNA test, and it took a while to come back. And as I suspected, I'm a mutt. I'm a European mutt. I guess my ancestors got around. (laughs) But the standout is, I'm 4% Jewish. I didn't know that. I have the same DNA as Jesus. (laughs) Thank you. I'm going to see if there's some retirement package in Israel I can take advantage of. I'm 4% Jewish. You know what? I'm 100% child of God. The blood of Jesus has been transferred to my account I'm part of the new bloodline, and so are you. David Hartman got a bone marrow transplant from his brother. And do you know what? He has his brother's DNA. Think about that. David could commit a crime 
leave a DNA sample someplace, and his brother would get, would get arrested. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> Through the blood of Jesus, God has transferred his DNA to us so that we are 100% children of God. That's what genos means. But this is God's work from first to last. He chose us. You know, there's that ongoing debate of God's sovereign election versus free will, in particular to how a person gets saved. And we think that we have to decide, did I choose God or did God choose me? As though somehow they're mutually exclusive, but in Scripture they're not. You see, it's just our Greek logic system that makes us say, well, it's either or. The Bible's perfectly comfortable with it appears to be a contradiction to us. Fact is, the Bible says, whosoever will may come. The message for the gospel is for all. Scripture says God's not willing, it is not God's will that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. But yet, the Bible makes it clear that no one will come unless the Father draws him. And it also makes it clear that everyone that the Father draws is saved. Someone once asked Charles Spurgeon, Sir, would you please reconcile man's will and God's sovereign election? And Spurgeon's response supposedly was, I don't need to reconcile friends. The Bible wants us to know that salvation from first to last is God's doing. And you know why that's important? Because that way we don't take the glory. God gets all the glory for what He's done. I don't have to figure out if God chooses, then does He not choose others? I don't even have to wrestle with that because the Bible doesn't wrestle with it. I trust a good and just God with it. How arrogant for me to think I have to figure that out. I don't. I'm not God. But God is good. And that good God says, I choose to create these people. And I do it for my glory. And that ought to make you feel incredibly grateful to be part of that choosing. I heard someone describe coming into the family of God as though we were standing before a gate and the gate has a big sign on it that says, whosoever will may enter. And you say, I need that, I want that, I choose that, and I enter into God's kingdom. And once on the inside, I turn and see on the inside of that same gate the sign that says, chosen since the foundation of the world. And I feel precious in his sight because of that. That's one of those tougher doctrines, you know. Tim Keller refers to it like hard candy. It's got all those rough edges that can hurt when you first put it in your mouth. But then as you work it, the rough edges get smoother and it becomes sweeter. There's doctrines like that that are worth our wrestling with. And they get sweeter as we, as we process those. Chosen people. We are also... A royal priesthood. What does that mean? Well, the real key here is to see it in terms of Hebrews chapter 6. Our forerunner Jesus has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. How many have ever heard of Melchizedek? He's an Old Testament person who predates Israel. Predates the Levitical priesthood. And Hebrews says that is the priestly order that Jesus comes down from, not the Levitical, not the Jewish priesthood. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, 
Salem means peace. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He is seen as a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, who was the true righteous king. And by the way, Jerusalem means new Salem. And so many contemplate the possibility that Melchizedek was actually the pre-incarnate Christ who came as the righteous king who would rule in peace. Now, if it wasn't the pre-incarnate Christ, he certainly was a foreshadowing. Jesus Christ is that king. He is also that high priest. We are part of a royal priesthood because Jesus Christ is our high priest. And we serve in his order of priesthood. And because of that, we gather these few points. We have access as priests to God's presence. Our job is to worship and serve God as priests. That's our primary vocation. Everything else is just tent making. I represent God to the world. We do together. That's what the priests, they stand as a mediator between God and man. They represent God to the world, and then they turn and represent the world and the people of the world to God in intercession and prayer. The fourth thing that we look at is we are a holy nation. The word for nation or people here is ethnos. First one was genos. This word is ethnos. It's what we get the word ethnicity from, and it means culture or a unique people. Genos is bloodline. We are genetically connected. We are part of the same race. Ethnos comes from your nationality, your traditions, your, your groupthink, your religious experiences, right? Think about this. We come from so many different places, so many great legacies, and, and, and it's not that we stop being those things, right? My wife doesn't stop being Italian because she comes to Jesus, she would argue all, all people that come to Jesus end up as Italians. That's, a, that's her opinion. And I'm so grateful for that. I got culture when I married my wife. I got cousins with 2,000-year-old basements when I married my wife. We don't stop being that, but we become something other at the same time together. So that even though we have different backgrounds, we come from different traditions, we are a new ethnicity, all of us together in Jesus. And that's why Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. And the Greek word there is a whole new thing that has never existed before. You and I are part of that. Because Christ is building his ecclesia, his church. We represent as a nation in the same way Israel did, God's character. We live to reflect God's glory and to reveal God's purposes to the world around us. That's what our Christian ethnicity is meant to be. The fifth thing that we look at is that we are a people of God's possession. And the Greek word is laos. Laos. And in the same way, people is the plural of person. Laos is us being in community, but made up of individual parts. We are a new bloodline. We are a new ethnicity in Christ. But at the same time, we are individuals together. But we are God's possession. The church is the object of God's greatest affection 
and delight. The word here means the type of possession that you put on display. Vitalina and I have been um, married for a long time. We're thinning out. You know, we've got 39 years of stuff. We have things that are precious to us, but they've been in storage. We bring them out once in a while. We look at them. But there are other things that we own that are so precious to us, we give them a prominent place for guests and visitors to come and see. The painting over our fireplace in my office has a great memory, and it's there intentionally on display so that when people come into our house, we can tell the story. When the Bible refers to you and me as God's possession, that's what it's referring to. God so loves his ecclesia, his bride, his church. It has the primary place of honor where everyone can see it and where he can stand and say, isn't it magnificent? Look at it. There's a story behind that. Let me tell you the story of love and redemption and sacrifice that led to this. Look at this people. They are my prized possession. I love them. They give me pleasure and glory. That's who we are. That's who we are to God. I love that. We all long for value, for acceptance, and for meaning. And our world tries to create a false sense of that by what we call self-esteem. The logic is if you feel good about yourself, everything else will follow. And so book after book is written to help you feel good about who you are. And the most famous of all is entitled, I'm okay, you're okay. The problem is, we're not okay. The whole idea of the Christian message is that I don't become okay just because I convince myself I'm okay. By looking in the mirror, as a Saturday Night Live character did, saying, you're smart enough, you're good enough, and darn it, people like you. (laughs) Because in our heart, we're not okay. There's a brokenness. And the gospel fixes that. Here's the thing. We want to really find our esteem. It's not about self-image. It's about God's image in us. And when God fixes that, we find our ultimate value... We find acceptance into a great people of God, and we find meaning because we live for God's pleasure and glory. We become far better than okay. We become God's prize possession. And then he goes on, and he wraps it up with verse 10. Let's say this together. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received. We who could never have become what we are together because we're from so many different places, so many different experiences, different ethnicities, different bloodlines. We would never sit here and choose to be this group together except that we have all become a common people in God. We have received mercy. And not only were we not a people, now we are 
The people. Ah, I love that. Several years ago, I was watching a live broadcast on C-SPAN of the dedication of Billy Graham's library in Charlotte, North Carolina. And the reason why it was on C-SPAN was because three presidents were in attendance. Jimmy Carter, George Bush Sr., and the sitting president at the time, Bill Clinton. I mean, these three men were each in turn the most influential and powerful and arguably the most important person in the whole world. And at some point in the dedication, a um, music artist by the name of Ricky Skaggs, anybody know Ricky Skaggs? Was introduced. And he just stood up there with a very simple musical background track. As the camera took him in with three presidents sitting on the stage, sang this very simple worship song, Princes and Paupers, Sons and Daughters, Kneel at the Throne of Grace, Losers and Winners, Saints and Sinners, Someday we'll see His face and we'll all bow down. Kings will surrender their crown with three presidents in the background. Kings will surrender their crown and worship Jesus. How big and how privileged is what we're a part of? Someday, even the most powerful on earth will be humbled. Some will be forced to bow and surrender their crowns. How grateful that we get to joyfully bow. Father, thank you that you called us out to be this people of praise. That as glorious as some of us may think our personal experience of you is, it pales in comparison to what we are to be and can be together. And so, Father, deepen our understanding of that, our commitment to one another. Let us be a people, Father, that bring you praise and delight. In Jesus' name, amen.